So turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. In the past few passages and the messages that we've had, uh, we've seen James warn us of various forms of worldliness. Worldliness, first of all, expressed by rash speech, uh, where we would judge one another's motives, possibly, not realizing that we're also judging the law, we are also usurping the authority of the one true judge. Last week we saw the worldliness that can be exemplified in a presumptuous attitude that would ignore or disregard God's sovereignty in our lives. We would ignore God perhaps in our planning to do this or that without taking into consideration his control and his right to be preeminent in our lives. This week, James addresses in very blunt terms the worldliness that can evidence itself in our lives with wealth. With riches. So today I want us to ask the question, wealth, what is it good for? Now we can fall into the trap of reading this passage of six verses. And you know, when I read this a couple weeks ago, you know, I felt kind of like going into a Frankenstein mode. Like rich people bad. Rich people bad. Tim not want riches. Fire, burn flesh. It's even in the passage. But that would be a little bit too simplistic. And um, I, I really think there are some principles here that we need in this body. On the, on the other hand, besides uh, taking this too simplistically, we have some views of riches, views uh, that we, we know some attitudes towards money are wrong. Um, lately in our home, we've been influenced by the, the writings of the great philosopher Bill Watterson. Very good, folks. Bill Watterson is perhaps more famously known as the cartoonist who gave us Calvin and Hobbes. So if we can go to that slide, please. You have to jump ahead a little bit. In the authoritative Calvin and Hobbes on page 35, he tells us, Calvin says, what do you think is the secret to happiness? Is it money, power, or fame? And he thinks for a moment, I choose money. If you have enough money, you can buy fame and power. That way you'd have it all and be really happy. Happiness is being famous for your financial ability to indulge in every kind of excess. Hobbes says, I suppose that's one way to define it. The part I think I'd like best is crushing people who get in my way. This cartoon is supposed to make us laugh. And we can go away from it now so that people pay attention. It's supposed to make us laugh, but perhaps in a rueful manner, recognizing the truth that makes this cartoon so incisive. So as you look in James chapter 5 and verse 1, as we prepare to read verses 1 through 6, James starts off again with a very blunt salutation like he did last week. Come now. Come now, you rich. I was thinking this week after Stephen's message last week, come now, is this ever a good opening for uh, an opening for a conversation that has a good message that follows? Did any of you husbands use this opening, come now, in discussions with your wife this week? Come now, be reasonable. Come now, let's think about it. Come now, please, use your brain. Come now, I don't mind sleeping on the couch tonight. It's, it's just not a good opening, but James just tears it up right from the first verse, so... Read with me in chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That is really harsh language. Read, let's read it again. I'll read a paraphrase. You read along in the version that you have. I'll read a paraphrase from uh, Gene Peterson. And a final word to you, arrogant rich. Take some lessons in lament. You'll need buckets for the tears when the crash comes upon you. Your money is corrupt and your fine clothes stink. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling up wealth. What you've piled up instead is judgment. All the workers you've exploited and cheated cry out for judgment. The groans of the workers you used and abused are a roar in the ears of the master avenger. You've looted the earth and lived it up, but all you'll have to show for it is a fatter-than-usual corpse. In fact, what you've done is condemn and murder perfectly good persons who stand there and take it. Now, when I hear something like that, in reading Scripture, we're always supposed to say, how does this apply to me? I have to ask, is James talking to me? Now, this is one of the most frequently discussed questions regarding this passage. Who is his audience? Is he speaking to believers or unbelievers? Is he speaking to Christians in this manner? Some commentators believe that James is speaking to rich Christians. After all, we know his book is addressed to Christians that were dispersed um, uh, from, from that land around the, uh, that world. To be sure, Christians are prone to the same temptations as their unsaved counterparts. So no doubt we can listen to this and know there are warnings for wealthy believers. However, his language is also sprinkled with heavy judgment language that makes us hesitate to conclude that he's speaking to believers about a judgment that we know will not fall on God's elect. James does not refer in this passage to the listeners as brethren, as he does elsewhere in James. And here he tells his uh, listeners to howl, to weep and howl. He does not call them to repent. Their doom seems to be inevitable. Whatever, however you would read this, I think it's accurate for us to say that James is on one hand speaking directly to the unbelieving rich. But he put this in a book that he was sending to believers, so he intends for others to be listening. There are applications here for rich believers as they are tempted in the same way. There are messages here for people who would desire to be rich. Okay, you might say... Tim, I accept that James is speaking to both believers and unbelievers, but I am not rich. I agree that few of us would call ourselves rich, but consider this. Are you rich in a historical perspective? Are you rich in a global perspective? Are you rich personally? Now, by most standards, we remain here in the U.S. one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We used to be able to say we were the wealthiest country in the world, but it depends on how you view debt that's owned by other countries as far as whether we are still the wealthiest country in the world. We are the wealthiest Christians in the history of the world. Um, The United States gives more to missions than any other country in the world. Um, That's in absolute dollars. That's not in percentage of income. Percentage of income the U.S. does not give um, uh, more than other countries. The next time you hear of millions dying of starvation on another continent, 
realize that those in that number, there are Christian brothers and sisters that are dying of starvation or for want or for disease. Um, it's interesting, uh, if you grew up in my generation or maybe older, you know that in many families around the, the U.S., if a child did not finish their meal, the mother might say, think of the starving children in China. Um, and uh, our world is actually small enough that we can have an impact in other parts of the world. That, that's interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. But um, we, relative to other people in the world, are wealthy. This is probably not news to you. But I, I found the website globalrichlist.com, and it has a little calculator where you can uh, type in your income. If you make $25,000 a year, your income is in the top 10, 10% in the world. If you make 50000 a year, that moves you up to the 0.98%, so less than 1% of the population of the world um, makes more than you. If you make 100000 a year, you're in the top 0.66%. $8 that we might spend on a lunch will buy 25 fruit trees in Honduras that can be planted by farmers to feed others. $30 might buy us a DVD box set of a favorite TV show, or it can buy a first aid kit for an entire village in Haiti. $73 buys a new mobile health clinic to care for AIDS orphans in Uganda. $2,400 buys a nice high-def TV or schooling for an entire generation of children in an Angolan village. So what's my point in mentioning these numbers? Is it to make us feel guilty for being born here in the U.S. and making a living and taking care of our families here? No. 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 It's not to make us feel guilty. But I want us to understand our wealth and what God says about it. Now, it depends on your perspective. You may describe somebody as rich if they make more than 150000 a year, or if they make 250000 Whatever you define it as, it's typically more than you make. Um, it, it, we're n- none of us would say you know, we're, we're wealthy. However you define it, please consider that our culture, uh, please consider whether our culture, if you agree with me, that our culture is one of gaining wealth. We are surrounded by a culture, and I don't want to say that in a way that excuses us because we're part of the culture. We help um, define the culture. Our culture is to consume and to supply the means by which we can consume more. I want to address in this message today uh, this culture of consumption, of gaining wealth for the sake of consuming. For the sake of this message today, I consider all of us to be rich. I consider James' warnings and dire predictions of judgment to be apt warnings for me and for you, regardless of what the actual financial situation is. Because globally, historically, we are among the wealthiest in the world in in time. So the first question I would ask is, what is your wealth? What's it made of? Take, Take a look at it. The first thing that James addresses when he gets their attention, what is it that you're treasuring so much? Look at verse number two. And three, where James addresses the futility of hoarding treasures on earth. The futility of hoarding treasures on earth. James has a main theme here. Your stuff rots. Your wealth has rotted. 
The Holman Christian Standard Bible version says, Your wealth is ruined. Your clothing is moth-eaten. It's ruined. Your gold and silver have corroded. They're ruined. The decay and ruin of your possessions will bear testimony against you when you are judged. Rust and moths are used by Jesus in the Gospels and by Old Testament prophets to vividly illustrate the transient nature of our possessions. But worse, worse than just collecting items that don't last... Hoarding also clearly implies that we are not using those possessions properly when we have them. Your corrupted gold and silver will bear testimony against you in verse 3. James is saying you hoard rather than use it wisely. So you see how I'm drawing this conclusion that James is not just talking about owning stuff. But you're owning so much stuff that it's rotting before you can use it. There's nothing wrong with buying food to eat. But if you have so much that it rots... It's wasteful. If you have clothing that becomes moth-eaten, that means you are not wearing it. Um, unless there are super moths that I don't know about. But usually it's stuff that's put into storage that gets moth-eaten. Uh, turn to First Timothy chapter 6. This is the other passage that we'll, we'll uh, refer to a couple times today. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 17. The Apostle Paul addresses the rich. As for the rich in this present age, verse 17 of chapter 6, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is saying wealth can be used to make, meet basic needs for food. He says that in verse 10 earlier. To enjoy, to be generous to others. This concept of hoarding is um, it's very interesting. In, our, in, in today's vocabulary, it can also describe a psychological condition. There's a show called Hoarding on A&E that um, kind of follows people that have this problem of really collecting a lot of stuff. And it's, it's usually a very sad situation. Um, the show follows how people, experts try to help them, how their family tries to help them. But the hoarding defined um, is, number one, acquiring and failing to throw out a large number of items that would appear to have little or no value to others, like papers, notes, flyers, newspapers, and clothes. So acquiring and failing to throw out items that have little value to others. Number two, have uh, hoarders have severe cluttering of their home, so it's no longer able to function as a viable living space. So... You're, you might say, Tim, I don't do that. I mean, I know my house is a little messy, but you can, it's a still a viable living space. But think about these in a larger, more eternal perspective. Do we acquire and fail to throw out things that have little or no value eternally? Do we have severe cluttering of things in our life that uh, keep us from being viable, living servants of Jesus Christ? Do we accumulate possessions that might be useful or precious to someone else. A few examples of hoarding that we might do. Maybe we'll, we'll never qualify to be on a TV show. But um, uh, if leftover food, we, we should... I, I won't get too much into dieting until I lose more weight, but um, 
we, we should not waste food. We should, uh, somebody t- told me once, we should eat until we're not hungry. We shouldn't eat until we're full necessarily. You eat, you eat to uh, survive. I realize this is dangerous ground going into Thanksgiving and Christmas, but um, we, we should uh, make, uh, be good stewards of what God's given us. So g- making so much food that we end up throwing out bec- because we don't want to eat that anymore, I don't think that pleases God. I mean, especially as you meet folks who are desperate to, to have any sorts of food. There may be some of us here that have closetfuls of clothing that we no longer wish to wear. Now, if related to the food, if it's stuff you've outgrown, um, then you have decisions to make. You can keep it as inspiration to lose weight, knowing you'll get back into that pair of jeans, or you can give up and buy warm-ups and feel better. Um, Whatever you choose to do with that clothing, there's probably somebody who could use that that clothing. Um, Our stuff, our church stuff, is in a storage unit at this time. It's an appropriate period of time for our church. But this whole concept of storage units is pretty unique to to our country. We have so much stuff, we can't keep it in our house. Uh, Our house gets cluttered. Now, why we don't... Uh, reuse that, recycle, let someone else have um, the advantage of having that desk that we don't want anymore, or why we don't do that, I don't know. I, I think maybe we do have a hoarding aspect in our lives that we might need it again. But um, just storage units are somewhat emblematic of our mentality of hoarding materials. People who treasure material possessions hoard. And James explains in somewhat brutal terms the futility of hoarding, that things will corrode and decay. And he goes further to say that those who hoard things that they treasure, people that do not use their materials, their material possessions in a biblical manner, the corrosion and decay of those items will themselves be evidence. They will testify against the rich in the day of judgment. Why do we hoard? I want to spend a little time thinking about this. Um, uh, why do we pursue things that we know intellectually will not last? We know that that clothing that we don't want to wear anymore, we're, ne- we're never going to want to wear it again. Um, we know that uh, the, the, the item that we thought was so precious that, that we wanted to, to buy for our home, we're not going to want to use that again. Even for believers, I, I think we have a culture of pursuing wealth, but none of us would say, I'm in it for the money. I'm working just to, to become rich. I think we have a more insidious or a sneaky sin of idolatry. We wouldn't say we worship the idol of money. We wouldn't join Calvin in saying, the cartoon, not the reformer. We wouldn't join Calvin in saying we enjoy oppressive power so that uh, that money can give and we look forward to crushing people. Instead for us, consider whether money equals security for us. Whether we are trusting in money to take care of us. Think about it. If you have enough money, when you get sick, you can afford the best doctors possible to take care of you. If you get into legal trouble, especially in our country, you can hire the best attorneys and they can lessen the penalty or get you off free entirely. And whether or not you are guilty uh, may not enter into the equation at all. Money is security for us. We, we know that it, you know, we want to save money 
so that we don't have to depend on other things or perhaps we you see where I'm going we don't have to even depend on God necessarily to take care of us in rough times it goes hand in hand with that planning from last week it's not wrong to save up Proverbs talks about um, even the very basic thing that happens every year the animals store food for the winter that's planning that's not saying God I don't I don't think you're going to take care of me that that is that's biblical but for if we get into the mentality of like I trust in my savings I trust in um, the wealth that I've acquired I'm not trying to crush anybody I'm not trying to oppress anybody but I'm trusting in something besides God this is where we get into a sinful view of our money we can find our greatest joy and our greatest peace in the security that money brings even though we might not realize it or might not admit that we're pursuing wealth Matthew 6, 19-21 are very familiar verses. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the first question, what is our treasure? It's just stuff that's going to rot and decay. It's stuff that's not going to last. And we shouldn't hoard it. And if we shouldn't hoard it, what is the application that we should make? If, if the Bible says we shouldn't hoard things that don't last, what should we do with things that don't last? That's to come in our applications in the third point. How did you get your wealth? That's the second question I wanted to ask. How did you get your wealth? Uh, James talks about three mechanisms by which people in that day and in our day might accumulate wealth and then misuse that wealth. In verses 4 through 6, in James 5 there's fraud and oppression in verse verse uh, 4 the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud those wages are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters the laborers that worked for you have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts secondly there's self-indulgent luxury referred to in verse 5 and then there's violence in verse 6 James echoes a common theme from uh, throughout scripture when he condemns the gaining of wealth through fraud and oppression Amos in the Old Testament talked about the injustice of obtaining wealth through oppression or fraud Micah spoke out against the unjust scales and the inaccurate weights with which Israel defrauded the poor in a system of agriculture where you were in that day they would hire day laborers to work and then they would pay them at the end of the day there's obviously a system that can be corrupted and can be abused. <clears throat> it may be a little bit hard for us to comprehend in our, in our culture because workers have rights. If someone refuses to pay you, um, there's a contract that covers you. Uh, people, I think, rarely would work for a day or for a week and have an employer say, I'm not going to pay you. Thank you for getting the work done. I'm not going to pay you. We would sue. We would do something. We would have protection for ourselves. But in that very agrarian society, if you were a landowner, you were wealthy. If you were born the son of a land, landowner, you were, well, you were going to be wealthy. If you were born in a laborer's family, that wasn't going to change. Generations of roles were, were put on people. So this oppression that James talked about was very, very common. And I think perhaps even for believers, it might have been such a commonplace practice 
that they might not see it as wrong. Everyone's doing this. Everyone is telling their laborers, you know, you can work for a penny a day, and at the end of the day say, well, I'm going to pay you half. What's the person going to do? They don't have any legal rights as a laborer in that time. Fraud and oppression could take three common forms. One, they could pay a laborer but hold their, their wages for an unreasonable delay. And again, in that time, getting paid that day was important for eating that night for your family. So to have an unreasonable delay was oppression. Number two, they could pay but for less than agreed upon and typically for less than a living wage. Or they could not pay at all. A laborer or slave could not take a ruling class person to court. They had no rights and they had no recourse. Now that seems very far away. This was written A.D. 50, A.D. 60. Let me describe a more recent example of wealth gained through ungodly means. And uh, just bear with me. Um, We're going to take a little trip in history. In the mid-1800s, there was a world event called the Great Irish Potato Famine. Have you guys... I didn't learn that in school, so or if I did, I wasn't paying attention. Have you heard of the Irish potato famine of the mid-1800s? Um, when I was in graduate school, working on my degree, I was working on some uh, for a biomedical device company, and my supervising scientist was an Irish national. He had he lived in this country, but he had citizenship in Ireland. He, he became a good friend. I really liked working for him because he had a cool accent. His name was Michael Donnelly, um, just Irish to the core. And I learned a little bit about Ireland, and um, I think I asked him why the Irish and the English don't get along. And he, he talked a little bit about this potato famine. And um, I, I, I share this as an example. I have no political ties to Ireland. I'm not for or against. It's just a historical thing that's a little closer to our time. Not from A.D. 60, but from A.D. 1850. In the early 1800s, Ireland was unified with England through treaties. And so Ireland was given a number of seats in Parliament. Um, but the, the landowners typically in Ireland at that time were mostly Anglican and they were English. And, but over 80% of the population of the Irish citizens were Catholic. Catholics were forbidden by law from owning land from holding political office, they could not vote, they were not allowed to obtain an education, they could not enter a profession. These laws were in place until 1829, and then under the centuries of these restrictions, of course, landowners became more and more non-Irish, became more of the English. The English owned the land, they lived in England, they would hire local people to manage the land and rent it back to the Irish as laborers. So you get in the picture, people that lived far away owned it, they would hire local people to hire poorer people to work the land. And, and the typical setup was that the, the laborer, the farmer, would be given like a quarter acre or half an acre to work um, for himself and his family, to raise food for his family. And then he was working larger acreage of land to raise crops that they shipped back to England. This is where the potato came in, because if you have like a half acre of land... Um, and I'm speaking from theory. I studied this extensively on Wikipedia. Um, if you have a half an acre of land, the potato is one of the few crops that's sustainable that can give enough nutrition that you can feed a family with. Um, it doesn't take more acreage. So the Irish people ate a lot of potatoes um, out of necessity. Landlords used their power without remorse, and people lived in dread of them. So what happens if you have a setup where the farmers are living off potatoes, um, 
pretty poorly, but all their effort is going to making other people rich. What happens when the blight comes, when the disease comes and knocks out the potato crop for like seven years? Um, That's where the famine began. Once the the blight came in, the Irish government sought relief from the unified government in, in England, but the response was very slow. So over these seven years... 20%, over a million people in Ireland died. Their population dropped 20% in uh, seven years. There were abundant crops that were raised, grain, wheat, that were raised in Ireland during these seven years and shipped um, as as exports. Um, As I said, over 20% of the people died. Legislation in Parliament that would have closed off the ports to allow them to keep food to eat Uh, just stalled in Parliament. And this is why one of the widespread views of the Irish people, when they talk about the famine, they they believe that there was genocide intended from the English people to the Irish. A man named John Mitchell wrote this quote, The Almighty indeed sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine. So why do I tell that story? or that that historical event to illustrate to you that not two centuries ago in the recent old world of Europe we see examples of food being hoarded of employer landlords oppressing the laborers we see people dying as verse 6 talks about because of starvation as food was shipped away to achieve profits Uh, James says you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter this is not just an ancient obsolete sin that took place in James's economy and culture this happened a couple hundred years ago uh, in in, uh, the western world that we know now I don't know if many of us here employ or pay employees and that we might oppress them and we might withhold um, their, their wages But biblically, if God does give us the opportunity to have people reporting to us, uh, if we do employ people, we should treat them fairly. But perhaps the greater application for us today, coming from this center section of this passage, is not whether we oppress the day laborers or those that work for us. Perhaps the greater application is to consider whether we sin by omission, whether we sin by not considering or not caring adequately for those who are less advantaged. To be sure, in our economic system, there are advantages. I had to think about it this a, a bit this week as I was studying. I grew up in a culture of, of education. I mean, it's, 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 it's a funny stereotype, but it's actually true. In a lot of Asian cultures, education is very important. Um, For me, there was no question of whether I was going to college. The only question was whether I was going to graduate school. College was the bare minimum for me. And I know that's an exception. There are many, many families that don't have that culture of education. In my arrogance, in my ignorance, I might... I know I viewed people that were poor as just... If they would work harder... I mean, after all, this is America. Everybody can make their own way. If they would just work harder, they wouldn't be poor. I, I failed to understand that... You know, I'm thankful for the culture of education that I had. I was taught how to study. I was taught to, to think. I was taught to be able to educate, you know, gain an education you know, that was provided for me by my parents so that I could 
gain a job that I could support a family. From, from a very early age, I knew that I, as a boy, needed to choose something to do in my life that would support a family. So I didn't go into English. But um, just a little joke. Engineers think very highly of our, our, uh, ourselves. But um, there are advantages. There are cycles of poverty in our country of um, maybe poorer families that do not encourage their children to seek education. And if, if you're growing up in that culture, now I'm starting to realize that it's, 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 uh, there are advantages given to us. And for me to just neglect or to think arrogantly of people that don't have the advantages that were given to me, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's honoring to God for me to not consider or care adequately for those that are less advantaged. I never wondered if we were going to have food. Never. I mean, that's tough enough for an adult to wonder whether we're going to pay the bills. But for a child to wonder, am I going to eat tonight? It's like almost unspeakably sad. I didn't live in fear of whether I knew where I was going to sleep or what I would wear the next day. I didn't live in fear of, I'm sick. I just took for granted I would go to the doctor and get medicine. I don't think this, this, is, this is normal. These are advantages that we overlook. In our quest for seeking wealth or seeking security, as I submitted for your consideration, we may oppress by ignoring those around us. And that's why I hope you will take steps to invest your life, either through our church ministries or on your own, that you, you might gain a burden uh, in learn, for learning more about the needs of the world and the community around us. Because hopelessness without Christ is evidenced in many ways. And, and Christ can change a person. Christ can, can change their work ethic. Christ can show them love. That even in, in poverty there is love for, for the people that are disadvantaged. I believe that you know, we've been given much and much shall be required of us. And so I, I know that we are just beginning to perhaps wake up a bit and look around us. Um, I do believe this is something that we need to, to pray about and study and see how God would work the gospel out through mercy ministries. But I believe that many of us are willing to begin looking outside of our own families, our own cultures. In verse 5, James also speaks strongly that our worldliness, our preoccupation with wealth, is evidenced by a life consumed with self-indulgence and luxury. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. These words speak of extravagant comfort and the softness of luxury. These are antithetical. These are opposite to following Christ. Because doesn't Christ call us to a life of self-denial? Doesn't Jesus say in three of the Gospels, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me? Ligon Duncan says, we need to ask ourselves questions like this. What have we given up to support the work of the church or of missions or to care for poor Christians? We should not ask ourselves, what have we given? But we should ask ourselves, what have we given up? What have we denied ourselves? What have we refrained ourselves in? As, as another aside, let me say I'm, I'm very much opposed to what I see as a, a dangerous tactic for motivating 
church Christians, evangelical Christians. I do not want to, you to hear that I'm, I'm feeding the notion that you should feel guilty for being middle class in America. That's where God has placed you. Now, if you gained the middle class by oppressing others, if you stepped on other people and took advantage of people that were disadvantaged um, t- in order to get the economic class that you are, I don't think God will honor that. But all too often in evangelical culture, we can read and we can see just the, the, the burden of guilt to motivate us to do something for God. That, that may have some immediate results, but I don't believe that God calls us to service out of guilt. We, are, we have said here, and we will continue to preach, that our service, our, our spreading of the gospel, our reaching out, is to come as the gospel transforms us and pours out. Um, so don't hear me saying, you know, when I encourage us to ask, what have we given up? It's like, have we refrained ourselves in anything, or do we just feed our indulgent behavior? Do we just seek luxury upon luxury because we can, because we can afford it? There are things that perhaps we don't need. And we should, we should really teach our kids this question. Things that we don't need, that we could better use those funds or that time to do something to advance the kingdom. So I'm, I'd ask you to consider whether a life of indulgent luxury is appropriate for a believer. It's especially sinful if it's gained by taking advantage of others. And as, do not miss in these verses where it says the cries of the oppressed workers are doubly heard. Not only their wages cry out, but the, the cry of the workers themselves are heard by the Lord of hosts. This is a title that is Jesus' battlefield title. So it, 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 it evokes the image that he will ride conquering to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. He will avenge their cries and the righteous, the cries of the righteous who have been murdered. We do not want to be on that end of Christ's attention as the Lord of hosts. In the second half of verse 5, it speaks of the rich fattening their hearts in a day of slaughter. Now perhaps this means that even when others are suffering, the rich continue to callously consume. Or perhaps it means that in the approaching day of their judgment, they continue unchanged and ignorant and just fat and happy going to their slaughter. Either way, we know that Ecclesiastes says that eternity is fixed in the heart of man. Man knows there's coming an end of days. It's sad, perhaps it's too prevalent, too common, that even for humans that come to the end of their days, you you can see folks as they reach the age where they're going to pass away, they continue to collect and hoard. They may even hold on to stuff tighter. And it doesn't make sense because they know there's a day of judgment coming. They know, and for believers, it's, it's entirely sinful that we would hoard resources that could be used for kingdom purposes, knowing that we're going to, to stand before God. Uh, Richard Baxter, a Puritan preacher, has, has said, Ask yourselves how often you will wish at death and judgment that your estates or your material possessions have been spent and use them accordingly now. Let me, let me read that more clearly. Ask yourselves often how you shall wish at death and judgment your estates have been spent and use them accordingly now. Why should not a man of reason do that which he knows beforehand he will vehemently wish that he had done? Okay, so Puritan syntax is a little bit different than ours. What Richard Baxter is saying, ask yourself, are you going to face God and, and how are you going to feel about your material possessions when you face God? Will you wish that you had spent them in different ways? 
And then he says, wouldn't any man of reason, any person that thinks logically, understand that we have this warning? We know what will, we know we'll stand before God and give account for what we have done here on the earth. Wouldn't we act that way, knowing that's a sure thing? Wouldn't we act that way now? So, when it comes to the end of our days, think about how your attitude towards riches should change. Hoarding seems especially egregious as we come to the end of our time here on earth. Looking in verse 6, we see that wealth is also used improperly by those who ignore God and pursue worldliness. It can lead to violence and death. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Some commentators believe this refers to the practice of the rich and powerful being able to twist the legal system of that day to deprive the poor from their wages. The courts ruled for those who had land. You had legal rights if you had patronage or wealth. The courts did not offer objective justice, uh, justice that we would hold precious in our country. It's a little puzzling that James doesn't say that the poor man was put to death. He says the righteous man. Maybe there's some shadowing that he's referring to Christ, who was the ultimate example of a righteous man who was murdered and who did not resist. I'm not going to be able to provide clarity to help you figure out what this is. This is a puzzling passage to me. But I do believe that it doesn't lessen the point that James is making, that condemning the innocent, um, condemning the innocent and oppressing them is a great sin. Whether he's referring to a, a uh, example of a righteous person murdered or to Christ himself. So what are we supposed to do with all our wealth? You know, I, I think perhaps up to now you know, it's been a bummer of a message where we're talking about all the bad ways that we can gain wealth and the bad things we bad ways we can think about wealth and hoarding. But what are we supposed to do with it? Wealth is not condemned by God. Wealth is not condemned by God, but the accumulation through injustice, the wasteful hoarding of that wealth, and the accompanying misuse of that wealth for ungodly purposes, that, that's condemned. Um, the reason we know wealth is not condemned, I mean, just two people come to mind from the Old Testament. Abraham, very wealthy. Job, very wealthy. Both put up as examples of faith um, in God in the Old Testament. So wealth itself is not condemning. The love of wealth, the pursuit of wealth, the uh, improper use of wealth is what I think we, is the main message today from James. What are we to do with our wealth? Number one, we should change our attitude towards our wealth. We should repent for living in a way that makes the gaining of that treasure the purpose of our life. We should repent for laying up treasure here on earth. And this is a tough one. I know that people want to have treasure for their families, perhaps. They would want to lay up treasure uh, to provide for their families. And I think that's, a, that, that's an admirable, um, admirable desire to have. But don't let that consume you. It is not wrong to own a home. It is not wrong to own cars. But if owning the home and the cars makes them own you by desiring more, desiring a bigger house, a better car. You have to work because you went into debt in order to pay for that. That's where it turns into sin. So first of all, we should repent for our attitudes of living in a way that makes the gaining of that treasure the purpose of our life. Number two, we should seek God. 
The gaining of wealth can frequently lead us to live as if God does not exist or matter. Remember last week when we talked about planning as if God doesn't exist? We can live to gain wealth so that we don't depend on God, so that our security is not in Him, but in the false security that we've uh, created with our wealth. We need to treasure God in a way that makes our wealth a tool that He can use rather than something that we use for our own self-indulgence or luxury. And thirdly, we should live generously toward those in need. Do not hoard, but let's follow what Timothy has said. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 again, if you, if you still have a finger there, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Four ways we can invest in the future, invest in heavenly treasure. Number one, invest with the poor in general. And I hope that our church body will grow in understanding how to do this, um, and that we can work with each other um, as God burdens you, bring it to the attention of the elders and, and uh, you know, take action yourselves if God has burdened you. And, um, sadly, we need to understand how to reach out to the poor. It's kind of interesting. Um, you know, this time of year, there's a lot of charity or benevolence directed towards uh, needy families at Thanksgiving and at Christmas. Um, we are working perhaps har- harder than we should to find needy families that this church body, different community groups would like to reach out to. That's not a good position to be in. Like, I don't know any poor people. That's that's not something to be proud of. So we're working on that. There are people that are, um, you know, we discussed it in our community group last week. We hope that the connections we make at this time of year, because no doubt there are plenty of charities who need volunteers. There's food, there's baskets that go out, there will be Christmas presents. We want to gain access through our connections in these next two months so that we can be active in Mercy Ministries throughout the year. Um, so pray about that and also go beyond praying um, and, and, and do seek around the community and, and bring that to our attention as God leads you. We can also invest in heavenly treasure by ministering to Christian brothers and sisters that have need, financial or otherwise. We can invest in heavenly treasure by supporting missionaries and our local church ministry. Um, these are all ways that we lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven, where we are not hoarding our material possessions here on earth for our own purposes. So wealth, what, what is it good for? It's good for giving. It's good for generosity and being ready to share. I'll close with a quote by John Piper on this topic. Possessions on earth are not for accumulating. They are for distributing in ways that Christ is honored and our joy in heaven is increased. When we give, especially when we give so generously that we have to sell something to have anything to give, we show that Christ is our treasure and that we love others more than we love our own security and comfort. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for the warnings that you give us through James. We thank you for 
giving us a different perspective. It's so easy as we live our lives here on the earth and we thank you for the, the common grace that you give to us and we thank you for the joys. We thank you that even as in Timothy you said we are to enjoy things here. All too often we forget where we came from. We forget that we are not only physically in incredible debt to you, but spiritually we are desolate and poor, that we are oppressed and we have no hope without the work of salvation that you have done in our lives. It just seems so odd that we would be consumed with our earthly pursuits our earthly ambitions when there are eternal ramifications where we know we know intellectually that uh, what is eternal matters more I pray that this this time in, in your word this brief passage um, that this perhaps flawed presentation would cause us to think about what you have blessed us with and how we are to do more than just thank you for those blessings but we are given these material resources to be used as tools in your kingdom. I pray that in my heart, in the hearts of those hearing this, that you will show us an eternal perspective, that you'll continue the work that began in last week's message and the message before where we are encouraged to have an eternal perspective on our life, that we would turn that scrutiny to our use of material possessions and our riches that you have given to us. Help us to remember how rich we are in Christ, as the songs today have have emphasized. And we look forward to the day when all this does melt away, where we, we see in a perfect way that the things here on earth didn't matter, that they are consumed, where we see what true treasure is. Help us catch a glimpse of that now, not for our glory, but that we might bring glory to you. We thank you for your word and how it leads us to know you more, how it leads us to understand what you want for us. And we thank you that we can rest in your sovereignty, knowing that uh, you want all good things for us, and that you know what's best for us is not just our uh, temporary luxury or indulgence, but you have chosen to use us to further your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.